Hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, Single-Minded Conversations. I'm Jesse Single, the host. I'm a journalist and podcaster uh, and so on. Um, we're going to spend part of today talking about an article that a lot of people are talking about that was in New York Magazine called My Penis Myself by Gabriel Mack. And then after I do, um, you know, I don't know, five or ten minutes spiel on that, I'll take questions about that or whatever else you want. Um the sort of context here is I've, I've written a little bit about mostly youth gender dysphoria and the debate over how to best help kids with that, uh, hormones and puberty blockers and stuff. This is an article about an adult. And I, I do think just philosophically, the calculus is very different there. And at the end of the day, I'm not really comfortable telling adults they can't get medical procedures they want. So I, I want to be clear about that. But um, I, I found there to be sort of a disturbing pattern in, in how some of these stories are covered. And, and this was a good example of that. So the piece ran in New York Magazine. It's called My Penis Myself. I didn't need a penis to be a man, but I needed one to be me. It's by Gabriel Mack, uh, who's a journalist. And it's basically just like a very frank, uh, long uh, story about him getting a phalloplasty, which is where they take tissue from elsewhere in your body to construct a penis if you don't have one. And this is something... Um, some trans men get I, I it's not i don't think it's a particularly popular surgery especially compared to vaginoplasty because it's just uh the crude thing you hear a trans surgeon say is it's uh <laughs> forgive me for this but it's easier to make a hole than a pole like that's actually a thing people say just because physically that is true and i think there's better results uh for trans women than trans men who get bottom surgery but a lot of trans people don't get surgery at all to be clear uh so this is basically about how Gabriel Mack just needed this surgery so badly that he, he dumped his life savings into it. Uh, he really didn't feel like he could be himself without it. And he got it despite the fact that these surgeries often come with side effects. Uh, and soon after the article went up, people pointed out that in 2011, Gabriel Mack um, then uh, going under the name Mac McClellan before his transition, and he still lists that name in um, in his profile. So I don't think he's that worried about uh, dead naming or whatever you want to call it. She she at the time witnessed uh, sexual atrocities when she was covering the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, and and got a lot of attention. Um, I'll just use he pronouns from here on out. He got a lot of attention writing about how he had rough sex, and rough sex cured him of the PTSD that he got as a result of witnessing sexual violence. Um, so people pointed out that this is someone who obviously has a lot of sexual trauma and a lot of stuff going on with his body. And, and this just wasn't really mentioned uh, in the New York magazine article. Someone else pointed out to me that in 2019 uh, after he started transitioning, Gabriel Mack wrote an article in which he basically said that going on hormones and getting top surgery had, had basically cured him, had made him feel like himself in a way he desperately needed. And then less than two years later, he feels so horrible, he's taking the next step, which is another serious surgery. This There's like a genre here where people don't treat these procedures the same way they would treat other surgeries. And, and I just don't think it's kind to folks dealing with trauma and severe mental health problems, um, a, a very basic psych 101 finding is that 
we're not good at introspection a lot of the time, especially when we're dealing with mental illness. We don't know what the source of our anguish is, uh, what is going to help us, why. But a lot of articles covering stories like this sort of treat it as obviously true that if someone thinks a serious surgery will help their mental health, it will. And I, I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that's not the case. In the 2019 article in GQ, uh, Mac also talks about recovered memories. Like uh, it's sort of hinted at, but pretty clear that he thinks he was sexually assaulted repeatedly as a child, but then he suppressed those memories for decades and and recovered them in his thirties. There's a lot of reasons to think that that doesn't usually happen. That doesn't mean it's impossible, but it, it just speaks to the complexity of the mental health issues at work here. And I, I, I don't, think that you're being I, I think the main thing I disagree with is the idea that to be validating or to be sympathetic or to be an ally, you need to say to someone anything you want to do with your body is a good idea. In fact, I think that flies in the face of a lot of research in psychology and a lot of what doctors do and the Hippocratic Oath. And this article reminded me of another piece from twenty nineteen in the New York Times magazine where they the writer wrote about this kid, um, this one was upsetting, who was who was so trauma inflicted that he's just sitting there with his therapist in sort of a fugue state, basically unable to communicate at all. As one of the long string of sort of fixations, he decides that he should maybe go on hormones and, and this the therapist is just like, okay, go on hormones. And by the end of the article, he's, uh, I guess, changed pronouns. She is starting to grow breasts, but she doesn't really like the breasts. Sometimes she gets dysphoria from the breasts that uh, she chose to grow by going on estrogen. So it's stories like that where I just think it's important to talk about the connection between mental health issues and, and major decisions, major medical decisions. And I think there's a lot of journalistic coverage of this where that is absent. And this is the one area where it's just like anything the patient wants has to be good. Cause if you disagree, you're, you're not down with the cause. And I, as a, someone who's written a lot about social science and some about mental health issues, uh, this just worries me. And I just, the extent to which this isn't a kind way to treat people, this isn't true compassion. I think it's a very thin facsimile of compassion. Um, I I don't know. It it worries me. So um, I don't have a huge amount more to say about this. If anyone wants to hop in the queue, if you have any questions, now would be a good time for that. Um, I do think there's a fair amount of pressure some of it from within publications to cover these stories in a certain way and to treat treat this as like a simple, linear, straightforward transition that that tends to turn out well and turn someone into who they really were all along. And I think that is the case for some people who transition. But I, I any competent clinician you talk to who's working with a patient with a lot of other mental health issues will say you might want to um, make sure that stuff's under control first because you don't want to make major medical decisions when you're not in the right headspace. Um, I've got a little more to say, but I'll leave it at that for now. Immortan, what is up? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I, I don't have that much to add except for one crucial component of this, which is that socially it is – allyship creates something, uh, especially the online version of it, creates a kind of a force field about – certain subjects and this is literally a topic that i cannot talk about um publicly at all like i could never talk about this in almost any of my social circles i can have conversations about it one-on-one and i can even say that in conversations with uh other gay men 
we have opinions that we recognize cannot be expressed on this. Uh, and what's really interesting is there are even trans men who have problematic opinions on this. And I have to pretend I don't know their names. You know, <laughs> I have to, you know, I can't talk about Aaron Terrell, yeah. et cetera, because they are criticizing the very kinds of things you're discussing here. Uh, and that's the, the only thing I have to add is that there's, there's a, a, there's something very terrifying about this inability to do anything but what has been prescribed by the collective when the collective is not yeah. truly interested in helping there's a performative aspect to it that really is kind of destructive uh there's and 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 it, i have no idea what to do other than wait for this storm to pass and i feel like a terrible person for not saying anything about it but uh by that same token i'm so aware of what the consequences are about talking about it at all yeah uh, I, I think um, I mean that that's obviously true. The the social pressure. I, I, my experience has been that trans people have a wide range of views on this. I've talked to some who were grateful that they had mental health support. Obviously, there's some who don't want there to be that kind of gatekeeping. I've talked to some who don't think kids should do it full stop. So there's a wide range of views, but only a very narrow set of views are um, are reflected uh, online. But um. Thank you for the call. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sure. I will cut you off. Yeah. I'm almost, I'm almost more worried about the allies uh, than I am because <laughs> the trans community is very, there are a lot of broad opinions expressed within it, but signal boosting the wrong ones can be dangerous to your social health. It could absolutely cut you off from your community. Yeah. The, the way people, not just there, but in other sort of, I don't know, trauma shaped communities, they often develop sort of a siege mentality. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 it would be rough to be a dissenter there. Uh, thank you for the call. Shauna, how's it going? Uh, great, thank you. Um, just a, a general question. I know in certain types of surgery, specifically um, like gastric bypass surgery, I believe that uh, especially if it's covered by insurance, there are prerequisites as far as um, therapy and nutrition and different things that you have to do prior to your surgery. And I was just curious if those sort of prerequisites or gatekeeping exercises are required um, when it comes to transition surgeries? Uh, that's a good question. I, I genuinely don't know. It would shock me if there weren't some prerequisites just because it is like a, a pretty major surgery, but I am less up on the sort of physical, I know the basics of the physical specifics, but um, covering the sort of assessment side of it has been a bigger part of, of what I've done than, than looking into the surgeries per se. So I'm so sorry, I don't have more information about that. Oh, no, I totally understand. I was just curious, but thank you. Yeah, thank you. Constantine, what's up? Hey, Constantine, you want to uh, unmute your mic? We'll give you a few more seconds. All right, we'll jump back in the queue if you can uh, see it. Oh, I accidentally booted Constantine. Constantine, get back in the queue, I'll get you. See us, what is up? And sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name right. See us, you're gonna, all right, next caller, Jacob. What's up? Let's see if we can get this working. Hey, Jesse. There we go. Hey, how's it going? 
hope that you enjoyed your safari through Trump country and are now safely back at the Verso loft. Uh, I no, I'm uh, I'm in Austin, which is a little bubble of uh, of blue in the middle oh, of Texas. Okay. So I'm well, safe here. I'll be okay. I'll survive. Gl- glad to hear you're safe then. Yeah, I just uh, <laughs> wanted to weigh in here. A good friend of mine finished their PhD in psychology about a year and a half ago, and they are an extremely offline person. Their social media use essentially extends to following their favorite sports teams. And I recently right. had a conversation <laughs> with them about some of the things that been happening in this space in recent months and the views i expressed are what you might call fairly mainstream for people who are extremely offline at yeah. this point i had to explain to them what the new standards of care are becoming and what the debate is becoming like so that if a trans person walks into their practice they don't risk losing their license and they were completely floored at what the new standards of care and the debate in the profession is because they're not very online and i'm just like wondering this is more of a thought than a question of what that bodes for healthcare professionals who are not at the vanguard of the internet zeitgeist and might say something that is extremely mainstream for the folks who are offline yeah, I mean, the short answer is, you know, any psychologist who expects to regularly work with trans people is going to have to just make sure they know um, the right way to talk about this stuff. I, I will say that there's like, specifically the attitude towards like 14 and 15 year olds or even 12 year olds, there seems to be a pretty big divide between how the more activist clinicians deal with that population and how any other developmental psychologist would. And it's just sort of a different set of rules that are much more sort of centered around the customer is always right in a way that I think if you really play it out is, um, is disturbing sometimes, but I, I, I thought the, the new adolescent standards of care, I was actually pretty impressed with because they focus so much on assessment and, uh, you know, even mentioned detransition. Oh, yeah. It's uh, definitely something that people who work with that population will have to know. But I guess the concern is that if they're working with somebody who then comes out to them or says they think they're trans or experiencing dysphoria, what do they then do? Because if they're not up to date with the zeitgeist, it could definitely have professional impact on them. So just a Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's a fair thought. And I, I think in some context, like just doing that basic therapeutic work can be taken to be unaffirming or offensive. I mean, just saying, you know, in a compassionate way, trying to get at why someone thinks they feel the way they do and where it comes from, which I I think is crucial, especially if you're talking about uh, physical interventions. And I think I think that's why some people within WPATH uh, have tried to have the section written the way it did, just to make clear, like, it's not conversion therapy to try to talk about the root causes of someone's uh, feelings about their gender, for example. Yeah. So I guess the question is what you do for those therapists who are extremely offline. But, uh, <laughs> they're, they're doomed. They should get a Twitter account, just lurk to see how people talk about this. Yeah, I think that's the solution. Well, yeah. I'll turn it over to, uh, I guess, Daniel then, but just wanted to I'm just, I'm bring that up. Thank you, Jacob. I'm going to bump Constantine to the top of the queue because I am um, sorry about this, Daniel, but you'll be next. I, I accidentally bumped him off. So Constantine, how's it going? Uh, can you hear me? Okay, thank you. Yes. I was with a whistleblower story on Barry Weiss Substack about puberty blockers and two surgeons talked about it. And you said uh, this life with adult 
have forced on Chess Jennings was with related to her transition care. Sorry, the question is about Jazz Jennings. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, was uh, oh, well, like, was, was the transition forced on her by adults, you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is in reference to, yeah, Barry White's article by Abigail Schreier that quoted Erica Anderson and Marcy Bowers. And, you know, they just, uh, Schreier just talked about how Jazz Jennings has now had some serious, really serious complications with her own bottom surgery, which she got. I think it's 17 or 18, so a relatively young age. Um, the short answer is we can't know what the family dynamics are. I, I think there's clearly some parents who get some sense of identity out of having um, a trans kid. And the clinicians I've talked to have said that it's really important not to push the kid in either direction. Like some parents do try to force kids back in the closet or to act in a gender conforming way but there are parents who sort of do the other thing who get who get excited that you know instead of having an effeminate um little boy they they have a little girl so i think we can't i i haven't really watched much of uh i am jazz so we can't know for sure what's going on there but i think in some contexts parental influence is a factor if that makes sense yeah okay i thought it was maybe because she was forced to go on the reality show and be on tv oh i mean i i i I try not to judge parents from afar, but I think featuring your child in a reality show is always a bad idea and will always make it harder for them to live an authentic life because there's some degree of pressure for them to fit that role, right? Uh, yeah, okay. Thank you, Constantine. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Daniel, what's up? Hey, uh, hey, Jesse. I think Shauna more or less asked my question. I, I was just thinking about the... Uh, this uh, gender reassignment surgery, surgery um, really should be seen as a, a category of uh, plastic surgery. Um, and it doesn't seem to get described that way. And um, I think it would be interesting to compare the standards of care for plastic surgery to uh, gender reassignment surgery. So, Yeah, I, so I think there's... I think the evidence base for um, bottom surgery isn't great, but there is some. I A lot of the uh, studies have like they'll lose 20 or 30% of their patients to follow up. So, it, so in other words, the regret rates are low. But A, these are usually from contexts where there was much more gatekeeping. So it would be harder for someone with severe mental health problems or, or who didn't have persistent gender dysphoria to get through. Uh, so that's one way in which the, the extant literature could be skewed a little bit. And then the other thing is like, if you have a hundred patients and uh, 60 of them have good experiences, 10 have bad experiences, 30 of them, you just can't find among those 30, some of them probably have bad experiences. So I think in some cases, regret rates might be underestimated in the literature, but um I don't think I would say it should be seen as exactly like plastic surgery, but I do think people need to be mindful of the limited evidence here, especially in 2021 where there's a surge of demand for this stuff. And, and I think people are often coming in with more and more significant um, mental health comorbidities than they did in the past, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Jules, how's it going? Hey, Jesse. Um, you can hear me, right? I can, I'm curious yeah. what you think of um, New York Magazine's role here. I work in media as well and was really uncomfortable seeing the cover this morning. 
um, I sort of went through several feelings from thinking New York Magazine was using Mac because they know the story is sensational and controversial and that there's a history of trauma here to thinking that they're being irresponsible for allowing this to be a first person piece rather than a reported piece given the context and how controversial issues around trans people can be to thinking New York Magazine's taking a firm stance on this. I'm curious what you think the implications are and I understand you've worked at New York Mag so if you wanna talk about it more broadly, that's fine. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I still have, have uh, I guess I'm still technically a contributing writer. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a courtesy title. It doesn't, it's not like it's on the print mass center. I think it just means, you know, I used to work there and I, I still technically freelance for them, although um, in the newsletter age, less and less. So I think it's really tricky. I, I think a first person story by a person who is fucked up, frankly, and I, I doubt Mac would, um, say that that isn't the case is really difficult because it's interesting to get inside the head of someone like that and to see what it is like to be them. And the story does a good job of that. Um, it, it just, but it takes at face value, this idea that like, this is going to sort of cure him. And this is someone who in 2011 thought they were cured by rough sex. And in 2019 thought they were cured by uh, hormones and top surgery. So I'm curious what you think, but I think maybe just in terms of telling a complete story that gives readers the full context they need, that might have been a start. Just to sort of say to Mac, if you want this piece to run, you need to include some grappling with this this other trauma for your past and with the fact that this is the third time you've been like, yep, I found the thing that'll make me feel better. I, I suppose from my perspective, I suspect this starts out from a good place. Um, where there are editors or reporters or folks there that know Mac and think that this is a powerful story. I think where it got very complicated for me was, number one, it is a first-person piece. I think if it was accompanied by something, that perhaps got more into the details of, of what this can mean for folks and the history of it. And I think, second, the photography accompanying the piece is purposefully provocative, very provocative. Um, and New York Magazine does that sometimes in order to get attention for their stories, putting it on a cover um, as well as this context. I, I think it's I think it's borderline irresponsible um, because it seems as if New York Magazine um, is backing this up 100 percent, whether it's a lot more complicated than they're presenting. What and what aspects of the complexity are you saying they should um I mean, you sort of address this, but I'm, I'm curious to hear more. This is the tricky thing and what you have gotten in trouble for in the past. Like, I found your piece in The Atlantic contained a tremendous amount of context. And then look what happens. There's a tremendous amount of pushback. So it seems that the media is moving in this direction of doing first-person stories or not adding in contrary views from clinicians or other folks in the space about this. And what it's leading to are these pieces that read as either very one-sided or that they're using a subject in a way in order to get more clicks on a story. Yeah, um, it reminded me of Andrea Long Chu got in trouble with some other trans people for, I forget the title of the piece. This was a Times opinion column that was like, my, my, um, I think my new vagina won't make me happy. And it just talked about how she had been suicidal and she didn't expect getting bottom surgery would make her less suicidal. And um, I mean, that's another example of, of, just sort of letting these stories be told in the first person without there being any countervailing stuff about like, you know, what surgery is for and what medical treatments are for, or what, when they're contraindicated. So, so that's the stuff you think that it's irresponsible to leave out. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That, no, that makes sense to me. And I, I, 
like I said, any any story by a troubled person is going to be both salacious and often readable if it's well edited, but often often fraught. And I do think if it's an area where there's a lot of like, excuse me, societal um, controversy, the the bar should probably be higher for uh, providing full context. Thank you, Jules. Chewy, uh, there's no one else in the queue, so if folks want to extend this a bit, they should jump in the queue with questions. For now, go ahead, Chewy. Hey, uh, I, that's good, because I, I think that my question is going to be only really tangentially related to this. I kind of um, had a question for you as, as a journalist that might, may help me, make me, or might help me understand some things. So um, this is going to be potentially a longish question, so just bear with me here. Um, so I was, I'm thinking about like the, the concept of the biases of reporters. And I don't mean that in, sen- in like a partisan sense in terms of like a, a like, Democrat Republican partisan sense, but a general sort of like oeuvre among journalists. Um, and I was thinking about this because I was, I just finished the book ministry for the future. Um, I don't know if you've, you've read it. It's a great book by Kim Stanley. Robinson. It's great. Yeah, it's a great book by Kim Stanley Robinson um, about very much about climate change. And it's incredibly bleak. Which I know you could say, well, climate change is bleak, but it comes from a place of bleakness. Like, and then at the end of the book, there's this line from one of the 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 characters that's basically like, "Aren't we all post traumatic at the end of life?" And I was just like, "Come on!" I mean, like, can you like? It, it just it came from a place that was purely bleak that like felt like it didn't address the full human experience that there is bleakness in life and like pain and trauma, but there's also a lot of joy and um goodness in life even through hard times right and so like i was i i finished this book and i was like god this just this doesn't feel right it doesn't feel like it, it it totally addresses the human experience and i i used to think when i was reading stuff like the new york times that it was like you know very um i feel like i could trust it like very matter of fact you know sort of just reporting on 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 the facts and the state of affairs and there's actually been a lot of like listening to you and Katie, who have like actually helped me see that there is sort of an oeuvre that can happen among journalists. And I feel oftentimes among whether it's race reporting, climate reporting or whatnot, that there is like a sensibility of bleakness among journalists that like just ends up being like the oeuvre of journalism. And so, you know, I don't know if it's, it's a part of like the, if, the, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. Um, but like, it makes me feel less trusting of sort of mainstream outlets because it doesn't often feel like it addresses the full human experience, right? I mean, this is sort of, the, I guess, the common problem with news is you don't, they don't ever put on the good news. There's an irony in which partisan outlets like Fox News, which I hate, um, in times of Republican uh, uh, administrations, report like quite strongly on the things that they think that the Republican is doing good and present a lot of good stories about the Republicans and give their viewers... Um, a lot of good news versus, you know, versus bad news, whether that good news is, you know, slanted or not. Um, and, and it just seems like the mainstream media is like, there's just like so much bleakness among journalists. And I wonder like, as you as an insider who is within this, if you see sort of this general oeuvre, um, and oeuvre, I just, I said it like four times, which is the only word I could think of. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I think especially now, Doomerism is very hot, and I, I think mm-hmm. there's like a rad- radical chic thing of pretending the United States is like a world historically unjust place. Um, it's funny. I, yes, exactly. I, yeah, I was actually just talking to a friend who's like very involved in progressive politics, and and he's done some good stuff there. And we were talking about um, just the bleakness of the of the middle medium term American political future, and 
one of the points I made is that like, if you really want people to sort of rise up and, and have a coalition against Trumpism and our Republican economic policies, one of the things that makes it hard is that American people are pretty well off materially. Like to my mind, there's a huge wasted opportunity in that we have such a grotesque level of inequality and I hate sort of the winner take all aspect of it, but it's, you can't, it's hard to find a time in human I'm torn here because like, I think we have to do so much better. But the fact is, like, we it's not that bad a place in, in compared to most yeah, of human I mean, society. I mean, it's like you, if, you, if you had to choose, you would not choose any other time in history to live than now. No. And there's a, like, there's a few, I don't know, if, you were, if you're doing like the John Rawls veil of ignorance, you don't know who or where you'll be. There's maybe some European countries you choose instead for just like the welfare oh, sure. state. But yeah, it's, it's, so that I think, I think there's something trendy about pretending <laughs> – the U.S. is this monstrosity when I view it as like a very flawed p- place that has potential that I don't I don't think we'll reach. Um, yeah, and I just and I don't think that it's I, I, I like I ultimately don't think it's helpful to present a a purely bleak view of the world because I just I just don't think most people see the world and are just utterly depressed about everything going on and so like. I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem helpful. It also, just doesn't seem true. You know. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say. I mean, the most successful politician of our generation is Barack Obama, who is very uplifting, and so is Bill Clinton. I, I guess Trump yeah. was the opposite because he did paint America as quite bleak, but his whole thing was to make it great again. So, but anyway, I'm I'm with you on Absolutely. this stuff, and uh, appreciate okay. the call, Chewy. Yeah. Aaron, how's it going? Aaron, you're going to have to uh, unmute your mic. Hey, can you hear me? Hey, how's it going? I can. Um, I have a somewhat unrelated question, if you don't mind. Um, So I've been looking at applying to schools for my daughter. And, you know, as I've been reading through the school curriculum, one topic that keeps coming up over and over again, this is for kind of elementary school, is, uh, you know, one central focus is the topic of identity and teaching identity at, at schools. And it just got me thinking, you know, is there... Um, at a very basic level, you know, why this focus on identity? Is it simply a roll-up in a convenient way of talking and describing, you know, like race, gender, class, et cetera? Or is it really to kind of a broader theme in education um, that I don't quite understand? Um, I mean, I think there's a mix of like a, a healthy impulse to make sure kids have you know, a strong sense of self, which can come from a lot of different places. And we are a very multicultural country, which I think is great, but which does require some level of like socialization of teaching people respect differences. There also has undeniably been a trend toward the idea that we should talk about uh, race and gender a lot and, and at the expense of other stuff. So I'm, there's a lot of like sort of early childhood interventions pertaining to race and identity where I'm, I'm very skeptical they do anything. And I think they could potentially make things a little bit worse. I think the most likely thing is that they'll just like go right over kids' heads. I mean, you see like raising your anti-racist baby or stuff. That's probably more intense than like what's going on in your kid's curricula. But I, um, I have not looked into the social science of it much, but basically any, um, sort of curriculum or intervention geared at making people more taught, be more tolerant. There's, there's often like very little evidence there. And it's often like people who, if not quite quacks developing it, like quack adjacent folks who really don't have any proof that their, their system works. I mean, have you come across genuinely weird stuff or are you just more curious about the prevalence of that subject in general? 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't, you know, I just hear anecdotally through school, you know, through friends who have kids at these various schools and just reading through the curricula, like they don't outline anything that seems on its surface weird. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong about teaching identity. Like there's nothing wrong about that. But, you know, I went to a very liberal progressive education uh, uh, school rather. And I just don't remember this like identity being such a central topic when I was at the school. And it just seems like that is such a big change between, you know, when I was in school and, and today, and I just, it doesn't seem clear to me, like, how did we get to this point? Why is there such a strong focus on it? Well, I think there's been like a serious insurgency in some quarters against like so-called colorblind education. Um, Cause I, I think it was the same thing. Like I grew up, I, we learned about slavery and the underground railroad, but in terms of how to, talk about race in day-to-day life it was i think it was basically and this was a long time ago now so maybe i'm not remembering but i thought it was basically taught as something that should be transcendent like you're different from uh your black classmate or your christian classmate if you're jewish but these are just skin deep differences deep down we're all the same now it seems to be much more your identity really does determine not only your life outcomes but how you should interact with others and that's the stuff i'm really skeptical about so i hope they're not teaching your kids that Yes, likewise, but we shall see. <laughs> All right, thanks. Thanks, Aaron. All right, we have two folks who hop back on. Um, if anyone who hasn't spoken yet wants to hop on, go for it. Otherwise, I'll take these two and then I'll probably wrap it up. Shauna, how's it going? Welcome back. Oh, thank you. Sorry, did I can totally hang up if... Uh... <laughs> no, 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 totally fine. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to add on to what Chewy said, and I think he said it rather eloquently, um, but just kind of the idea that, and I'll try to tie it back to trauma, but I find myself often showing my age here, but I would be called the term elder millennial on the cusp of generation X. And I, I find myself kind of surprised at how easy my, my younger colleagues or the, and people I admire who are younger than myself get mired down in just this, negativity and doomism, for lack of a more appropriate literary term. Um, and I just feel like I always try to um, instill a sense of levity into situations. And I find that's one of the reasons why I like your podcast so much that, I mean, you'll talk about things, frankly, Jesse, that I have no <laughs> experience with. And I've mentioned before that I, I'm not on Twitter. and But the... Um, just the humor and the intelligent humor and the levity that you and Katie are able to bring to really intense, complicated scenarios. I mean, I'll just say, I appreciate. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of my, I'm trying to be upbeat, you know, it's holiday times, end of year, but um, if I could give a gift to anyone, it would be just that we all have a a little bit of, of levity and take a deep breath on things that, um, especially when we're trying to tackle really complicated issues and painful issues as as a nation, that it is okay to have humor. <laughs> it is okay to take a deep breath. And um, as a former Texan, I think you should enjoy your time in Austin to the fullest. So, yeah. Thank you, Shauna. Yeah, I appreciate the call. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd add to that is I do think, for people in, I mean, my age range is now late 
30s, I, I think a lot of folks were really screwed economically in terms of when they came into the workforce, given the, the crash of 08. And I, I think there's maybe like, I don't really believe in stark generational differences, but it wouldn't surprise me if um, some millennials, particularly younger ones, actually have like a sense of ennui that had just set in from the fact that things seem fairly rigged against them as compared to the parents. But um, that might be an oversimplification. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to let Mickey jump you just because this is his first call, and then I'll get to you, and then we'll wrap up. Mickey, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, how are you? Good, good. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to weigh in real quick. I think it was going off of um, – oh, crap. I can't remember whose question it was. It was like a guy – it was the guy that called in and was talking about his children getting enrolled in school. And um, – identity stuff. I, I work in education sort of like not in, I don't work in a school, but just, I work in the industry. And, um, it's interesting cause we've, you know, there, there've been sort of trying to incorporate, you know, you know, gender neutral pronouns and, and they, them and stuff like that into, uh, into lessons sort of part as like a DI, DEI initiative and stuff like that. And one thing that I found that I find is difficult about about the issue in general is how do we, it's like, we know that just like a good size chunk of the population is, is gay. You know what I mean? Just it, like, yeah. you know, anywhere between, you know, two, 5%, something like that. And I think it's like, we should obviously be like completely normalizing that, like, you know, schools in lessons and stuff and educational stuff they should show, you know, families that are, you know, two dads and two moms and stuff like that. You know, it's like, it is a, it is a reality and a relatively normal thing in the grand scheme. And it's interesting because it's like, you could definitely make the argument that, that uh, talking about identities and, you know, and gender identities and stuff like that will be viewed the same in the past. I don't really feel that way though. You know, and I think it makes it really, really complicated. You mean for how to teach that stuff to kids? Yeah, yeah. Because it's like you want to be, you want to be open-minded about it and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to like present this one picture of everybody being exactly the same, but then also how do you do that yeah. without, you know, pushing what I, you know, what I consider to be in general ideology and. Yeah. No, I, look, I, I think the tricky part is that very young kids, this is like a very well-established aspect of, of, gender development like they don't really know the difference between they, they at very young ages kids think if you put on a dress you become a girl like that's how rigid their views are and this is something clinicians who work with young kids have told me and it's in the research literature so i just think any curriculum has to if if you i, I don't think you need a full-blown curriculum other than basic anti-bullying stuff for like three and four-year-olds or kindergartners i guess is really more relevant um yeah if you do, I just think you need to be very careful about separating out gender expression from gender identity. And, and gender identity is such a fuzzy concept and in certain ways incoherent that adults don't understand it. So I'm not sure how you can really teach a six-year-old this stuff in a way that won't be confusing. Um, yeah, I, I think it's tricky. I, I just I, I do think like a very liberal approach to teaching kids that anyone should be able to wear whatever they want or express themselves however they want would, would be healthy. To me where it gets less healthy is the idea that as soon as a kid expresses gender nonconforming behavior, that means they're not really a boy or a girl. And I think you see a lot of that sort of essentialism. Yeah. Um, and real quick, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but it, it, it kind of makes me think about like, there's also this big push for push for uh, like social emotional learning. Yeah. 
being taught in schools more and more. And it's, it's funny cause it's like in a way, I think it's, it's great that as a society, we want to sort of like, you know, help people learn, you know, good ways of relating to people and stuff like that. But I feel the more and more we remove that from communities and families and stuff like that, the more and more just sort of like out of hand and, you know, trying to like hold sand in your fingers and keep it because people are never going to agree and they're just outsourcing this stuff more and more to other people. And I think that just is making things really complicated too, even though it's a good, it's like a well-meaning exercise, I think. Yeah. 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 That yeah. Makes thank sense you. To me. Thanks for the call, Mickey. All right, Jacob. Let's uh, let's finish strong here. Yeah, uh, I am back. Actually, just uh, one more thought, more than question. I was actually thinking about this during uh, the call-in a couple days back with uh, Bot. Yeah, just because of the nature of the call-in platform, where everything is designed to be recorded, I'm wondering if it might cause, you know, the normal folks who don't necessarily have a public platform to self-censor, just because of, you know, by nature of the internet, this is being posted online and archived and anyone could download it. And of course we've seen people lose jobs for all kinds of things, both very actually really bad stuff and more mild stuff. But there's a whole culture online of digging up old things that, you know, people once said and for once upon a time and using it against them. So I'm just like wondering what your thoughts are on Colin in how self people may self censor here. Yeah. No, I think it's always a risk, and that, that reminded me that I, sh- I should just, as a general um, rule, mention briefly before I start taking calls, like, look, this this stuff's being recorded, and, and you might not want to use your real name or your real photo. Uh, I think that's a perfectly legitimate concern. I, I do think the folks asking questions, A, the amount of obsessiveness it would need that would need to take place to track someone down and get them in trouble, especially if they don't have a big profile. Um, I think it's unlikely. And and I do think the folks who call in, you know, are comfortable enough having their voice be recorded. But um, I think I'm going to make that a regular part of, of, of queuing up the callers, just reminding everyone that like, look, this is recorded. I, I can't fully control who hears it, uh, stuff like that. So that's a, a point well taken. I think Jacob. Oh, yeah, it definitely would take, you know, somebody a ton of work to track down an an old call-in recording. But I guess, you know, for some people... People are obsessive weirdos. I'm sure they could uh, make it happen. Exactly. And, like, I don't necessarily know who's listening, but, like, personally speaking, I have... Uh, you know, a high-paying position in financial services, and so it could theoretically be an issue for me. I can't speak to others, but... I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Leave that out there. And thank you, Jacob. Thanks, man. All right. Uh, thank you for the sort of impromptu conversation, everyone. I uh, I don't know. I read that article. It seemed worth a, an episode. Uh, as always, I would ask you if you if you like the show to tell others about it, to get other people on call in, to follow me. You can always send me an email or a message with guest suggestions or with uh, you know ideas for segments. I'm I'm going to do more guests next year when I'm just not on the road and it's just easier to plan stuff having a normal uh, day-to-day routine, but thank you guys so much for listening and uh, for the support. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a good Monday. Bye.